Hello, everyone. This is George, and this is the first of two conversations I'll be having with Roar Bionis, who is the co-author of the book, Growing a New Economy. This conversation could be called Understanding the Problem. After one big picture question, I'll begin with some very basic questions about how our economy works, and then move on to a few more about the kinds of problems the system is currently creating for the planet and most of the people who live on it. The second conversation, which we'll have in January after we've finished reading the book, will be about solutions to the situation. So welcome, Roar, and I want to begin by giving you a chance to set the stage. When you pull way back and look at this moment in history and the current economic situation, what do you see? I'm asking for a broad look at the cycle and where the paradigmatic breakdown or breakdowns is or are taking place. Can you just address that very big picture question to begin with? All right. Uh, thank you so much for inviting me on this call. <clears throat> um, as we all know and have noticed, we live in a time of great polarization and turmoil, as well as economic, political, and, and cultural. There is uncertainty uh, caused by our economic system. And as some economists, like, uh, for example, uh, German Wolfgang Strake, uh, I'm not sure if I pronounced his last name correctly, but he wrote a book called How Will Capitalism End? And he says that the finance sector will very soon implode in a crash. And uh, incidentally, Sarkar said something similar, that capitalism will eventually explode like a firecracker. Um, when that will happen, uh, that is, of course, anybody's guess. But it could happen soon, or it could happen in a decade or, or, or two, <clears throat> um, as the beast of capitalism is very resilient, as we have also realized. So, um, as you said, let's step back a little bit and take a brief overview. Um, and, and I want to do that first uh, by looking at the four crises that we have mentioned in our book, the finance, inequality, resource, and environmental crisis. Each of these crises are very severe on their own, but um, they cannot be changed in a piecemeal fashion uh, by reforms. And, and as you probably noticed, we started our book with a quote uh, from Naomi Klein, who says that we live in a time of overlapping crisis and we need to connect the dots and we need to solve, solve these crises um, in, you know, each crisis uh, sequentially. We need a movement that addresses all of them. And, and that's essentially uh, the essence of our book as well. And secondly, we feel as... Um, we, we cover in the second part of the book, uh, or rather the third part, that reforms are, uh, we're done with reforms. Uh, the times for reform are over. That's why we're in for a big crash, I think, because the reforms are not uh, working. We have been, uh, in a sense, taking a reform pill for decades, and uh, we can say the acid reflux of capitalism has turned into heart disease. The good news is that uh, this capitalist heart disease can be reversed. But I think only if we throw away the reform pill and change our lifestyle, you know, uh, uh, we have to change 
our economy. And as we say in the book, we have to restructure the economy. Um, another sign is that, uh, as we have also seen recently, there's a growing discontent, both from the right and the left. The right is reacting in many ways in, in knee-jerk fashions, in reactionary ways, um, and in many times in ugly ways. But nevertheless, many of the reactions are justified, and the left is frustrated, uh, groping for answers to a solution. There, there is a great instability and uncertainty from below, from the growing uh, precariat. Uh, a term that uh, I just heard recently uh, from James Kirk, who recently spoke at the Festival of New Economic Thinking in Edinburgh, Scotland. Um, some members of the Proud Movement were there, and uh, I, uh, one of my friends sent me some notes from that conference, and he said that James Kirk... Um, who used to work for the Council of Foreign Relations, and is basically, as I understand it, the conservative. He, uh, surprisingly, uh, sees hope in the restless precariat, the underemployed, and those, you know, those of us working three jobs, and also in the Bernie Sanders movement. And again, Sarkar said something similar. He said that the change would come from the disgruntled intellectuals, those uh, people with a revolutionary spirit. Um, at that same conference, uh, Joseph Stiglitz was speaking as well, uh, the former chief economist of the World Bank, if I'm not mistaken, um, and in many ways he has made a complete turnaround and is now very skeptical of the neoliberal policies of deregulation and free trade and so on, um, policies which he once supported. Now, he says, uh, we need to create a Nordic model of economics everywhere. But the question we have, and uh, we pose in the book, is that going to work? Does the Nordic model hold the solution to our problems? Um, this is, a, I think, a, an essential problem because many uh, progressive people, many people who talk about economic democracy, is seeing great hope in, in the Nordic model. Environmentalists um, sees hope in, in sustainable capitalism. But again, we're asking the question, is this enough? And um, I don't think so. Uh, I think that we need to ask some very fundamental questions. The first one I think we need to ask, which E.F. Schumacher um, talked about, we need to essentially ask what's the philosophy of economics? What is economics? Um, If we go back, um, the Greek word oikos means literally how to take care of our earth household. I mean, it's the basis of both economics and ecology. So our economy needs to bridge ecology with economics. It needs to bridge ethics with economics, and it needs to bridge science with soul or or spirituality. This, I think, is totally missing in the economic system today, and this is something we need to address. We are not doing that yet not on any big scale. It is starting on a small scale, but on any big scale it hasn't happened, but this needs to happen. We also need to ask what progress is. Um, Capitalism says that progress is equal to material growth and making profit. Uh, Sarkar, on the other hand, says that material progress is not real progress because there are always side effects to any kind of material progress. You can never be perfect. 
So he says that the real progress is found in creating a good society, in, in creating great culture. In other words, in, in meaning, in, in, in a society that supports the spirit. This is fundamental and, and again, totally missing in, in modern economics. Um, so there's a failure in materialism because materialism can only give us some comfort and not, but not inner peace and happiness. And, and again, you know, there are economists focusing on this today, which is very heartening. Um, and because of this failure, modern economics and capitalism has tried and failed to turn economic, you know, into pure science. They, they've sort of uh, operated in a very theoretical vacuum. And Carl Pollione pointed out in, in the 40s that society, our, our, our ethics and our basic philosophy needs to guide economics. We can't just think that economics is some kind of number scheme. And he also pointed out that capitalism tends to commodify everything, to make everything into a commodity. Um, and finance capitalism has made economics into a speculative game. Um, and this, in a sense, I think is an outgrowth of this commodification. Um, capitalism is based on, also on a selfish pursuit of greed and, and uh, the freedom to earn but also the freedom to exploit, the freedom to have the power to deny other people a fair share. This freedom, you know, uh, is totally ignored by conservatives. They just justify uh, exploitation and, and great inequality as if, as if that's, you know, normal. Um, the, the left, with Marx, uh, criticized this aspect of capitalism, and uh, but they haven't really come up with in my view, a real alternative. And, and I think this is where Proud comes in. Um, his theory was also naturalistic, very much based on viewing the world as, as a machine and so on. Um, then we have the reform movement, which again points towards the Scandinavian model, which so many are preoccupied with. You know, I grew up in Norway, and, and I'm quite familiar with that, with that society. Um, and Keynes and uh, John Maynard Keynes, economist, uh, his reform policies uh, and the leftist struggle uh, helped to, uh, you know, to soften the blows of capitalism in a way and to redistribute wealth through high taxes and so on. Um, and then this created the European welfare state, and many are now today looking towards that as, as the model of the future. Uh, Stieglitz, you know, Bernie Sanders, they love that model. And, and many others, um, Krugman and so on, other economists. But I think that that model also has serious flaws. It's not sustainable. It's not, uh, I think, environmental enough. It also wastes enormous resources on propping, and it props up a welfare system that uh, has many, many flaws uh, that you know, I could go into great detail of that. But and in a sense, I agree with some of the criticism from the right about that model. And again, Sarkar has, uh, I think, an answer to that, and that is not to create a welfare model, but to create um, uh, full employment and and to to make to to utilize people's um, uh, inventive spirit and uh, and work ethic. Um, and again, you know, the EU. 
is reflecting in many ways this model. But as we, we do in the book, we are, we are also critical of the EU, mainly because the EU is also based fundamentally economically on the neoliberal model, the four freedoms, uh, you know, uh, as we talk about in the book. And I think because of this neoliberal economic foundation of the EU and also because, so in other words, the centralization both economically and politically I think is one of the reasons why we're seeing a crisis in the EU right now, uh, both a political crisis and an economic crisis. Um, so, um, again, you know, the reform people or the reform movement with uh, Stieglitz, Sanders, and so on, you know, to use uh, American uh, economists and American politicians uh, as an example, I think it's a very positive sign in many ways, but also is limited. Um, then we have the environmental movement, which again is very important and very positive, but again has certain weaknesses, and we're trying to cover some of those weaknesses in the book. Because, and I think the main um, weakness is that um, is this uh, fundamental idea that they haven't really understood the fundamental weaknesses of capitalism, the fundamental flaws of capitalism, which I mentioned some of them uh, initially. Um, we are also seeing that the model in Scandinavia is leading to increased inequality and into <clears throat> speculative finance capitalism. You know, every time I go home to my uh, mother, I see more and more rich people, more and more materialism, more and more wealth, and uh, a movement away from the old, more decentralized economic system that I grew up with in, in Norway. Um, on the other extreme, we have the American model of less regulation, less reform, uh, you know, an extreme neoliberal economic model, uh, which has created an extreme... Uh, rentier economy, large monopoly companies and so on, banks controlling the economy and uh, and then the, the rest of us as, in, in a sense, economic uh, slaves. Um, many of us have come, become part of that precariat that uh, Kurt uh, talked about, the educated un underemployed. Um, and as another fellow uh, proudest, uh, economist uh, calls it uh, we have created the casino capitalist economy with increased uh, inequality and, and another uh, economist, uh, I forgot his name, he calls it the inverse welfare state where uh, as Ralph Nader put it we have created a system where we have socialism for the rich and, for the rich and capitalism for the poor um, we have also as we mentioned in the book again created a a resource crisis, or we are on the way to to live up, you know, our our means. Um, we are, in a sense, as some researchers have said, we are we are using the resources of one and a half planet, and soon we will double that. We've, in a sense, created a, a tremendous global ecological crisis. Um, in, on top of the debt, cri debt crisis and the inequality crisis. Um, 
And, and again, the green moment is, is an important response to that, but again, I, I don't think it is enough. I think we need not a reform or, or a sustainable capitalist system. I think we need a new structure. And I think that this is emerging, uh, even though hardly uh, anybody knows about Proud, I think this is emerging from the underground. I think that people are sensing the need for that on, on a much larger scale that, that we are aware of, or, or certainly that is covered in any kind of a media. Um, so I don't think the next economy will be the Nordic model or the EU model, um, because as I said, they're, they're also based on neoliberal economic values, deregulation, and are not really about true economic democracy. I also think that it will likely get a lot worse before it gets better. Um, and it is possible that the finance sector will implode in a great crash uh, and, and, um, and so on. So, um, uh, yeah, I, I think that, uh, you know, as, as uh, Bob Dylan sings in one of his songs, he says, everything is broken. And I think in many ways that is true. Um, really on a, on a global scale. But at the same time, more and more people are waking up both on the left and even uh, on the right. I was surprised that, uh, for example, that the biographer of Margaret Thatcher uh, wrote in um, Fortune magazine uh, some time ago that he thought that corporations should be turning to worker on enterprises. And this was in Fortune, Fortune magazine. Of course, this is not going to create any revolution by any means, but I think it is important that uh, even uh, people on the right are waking up to some of these uh, new possibilities and, and realities. Uh, I also think that people are more and more realizing that nationalism is, is not working, that we need to both protect the local and the global at the same time. This is a very, very important point, uh, and which is also uh, very much emphasized in Proud. We need to bridge economics and culture. We need to bridge science and spirituality. And, and we need to solve our crisis, all our crises, in an integral way. That is really very important. Um, we can't really just tinker with the system, which I think that a lot of uh, the so-called sustainable capitalist ideas are tinkering with a system that really need to be restructured completely. Um, so um, that's, I think, pretty much uh, the view that that I have. So I think that the positive thing is that uh, people need need to and will at some point rise to the occasion, uh, and hopefully very soon. But before that, it is likely, I think, we will have uh, more economic turmoil, more um, international turmoil, um, and, and so on, on many different levels, uh, different crises on, on these levels that I've talked about. But finally, I think that this, these crises together will give us a critical mass of awakening that we need for, for creating real change. Thank you, Roar. Great, great introduction. 
And it's exactly what I was hoping for, that, you know, a kind of big picture take on, you know, what you see and how you see it. And I appreciate so many references that you made going along, and I'd love to pick up on lots of them. But I'm going to try to sort of stay with a bit of the discipline, at least at the beginning of the call here, to go over some of the questions which are pretty real for those of us who are obviously way less informed on the big picture than you are. And I've got a series here of four questions, which are all just about kind of the the here and now of capitalism as we experience it. And they're, you know, frightfully mundane, but they still matter to me. Um, and I think they matter to most of us on this call. So I want to just walk you through these things and just get your response to some ideas. So where I want to begin is going over this distinction that comes up repeatedly in the first chapters of the book between the real economy and the financial sector. The real economy is the easier part for me to understand, and I think of it as old, basic capitalism, maybe 40, 50, 60 years ago. And in that, someone has some money, which they put into building a factory, buying machines, purchasing raw material, and hiring workers. All of that goes into producing something that is presumably sold at a profit. The workers get their salary, and the original investor, the capitalist, gets whatever additional profit there is. And the basic idea is that now this wealthier person will then use some of his new wealth to buy more machines and hire more workers. In this way, his profit keeps getting turned back into the real economy, helping it grow in a way that benefits everyone. Is that an essentially accurate description? Anything you would add or subtract to that? Yeah, I, th I think that yeah, I, I think that your analysis is basically correct. Um, I think uh, the real economy is, in a sense, economic activity that adds uh, to the amount of wealth the world you know already has. Um, so yeah, I, I essentially agree with that description of how the system works, which which also more or less corresponds to you know Marx's formula, the MCM formula money, uh, commodity, money. In, in other words, that money is invested to produce commodities and then sold uh, for profit. In this system, the, the, as you said, the capitalist ends up with more money than, uh, than, uh, than what he had when he started. And then at the same time, he's producing something uh, with that money. They all, you know, prior to the that system of capitalism in the more, maybe in the more fuel system, there was this, uh, what also Marx, I think, used the CMC model, commodity, money, commodity. In other words, the farmer had, had land as commodity, produced um, something from that uh, and sold it and then made money and then bought more commodities, maybe, you know, another horse or some more cows. And, and so that, that is a very simple a uh, model of uh, of economics. So, in in this new style of capitalism, um, where there's profit, uh, that profit can be used for good by investing back into the real economy, or it can be used for speculation in in the what we call a rentier economy in the rentier system. And I think that this is what very much what is happening now. You know that. This rentier economy, this speculative economy, has has grown. But but essentially, yes, I think uh, the way that you described it is is essentially right. That um, basically how you know good capitalism functions, and in the in a proud context, this would be 
the the small scale capitalist uh, private enterprise, which would function in a, in a proud structure on a on a small scale, where the profit margins are not allowed to become huge, and where, in other words, inequality is not uh, expanding to an unhealthy level. And, and so, in other words, Proud is saying that rather than uh, sort of taming the beast of capitalism with taxes and, and so on, it is better to just keep capitalism on a small scale. And when capitalist firms become bigger, then turn them into cooperatives. So that's how... We, we may get back to that later on, that, that point, but that's essentially uh, right. how I see Proud dealing with it. Yeah, I think I remember that Sarkar suggested once a business had expanded to a certain number of employees, that, employees, that that's when it would need to become a cooperative. But we're not in that world yet, right? We're still in. Let's, let's switch now into the, the world that we are in. And let's pretend that the okay. capitalist that I just described in the first piece there, you know, has a fairly substantial manufacturing industry. And let's pretend he's made a million dollars that he now has. And in this new financial sector, what are his options? What are the kinds of things that he might be doing with that money that isn't actually creating anything in the real economy? Yeah, so, you know, he can invest that money in the stock market, um, into what, what we could call the speculation economy. You can become a, a casino capitalist, if you will. Um, if he's lucky, he can turn a you know, million dollars into 10 million, even more. Um, you know, many, many people have, you know, for example, invested in the Bitcoin market, you know, 10 years ago, whenever it started and are now, you know, multimillionaires. Uh, so this is happening more and more. The, this part of the economy is, is really um, now the largest part of our economy, ironically. So in that sense, you could say the sky is the limit. He can also lose all of that money in the stock market, in the stock market crash, which you have also seen. Um, many, many have, have lost that money. Um, you know, um, I, I come from... Uh, you know, an agronomy back when I studied agronomy and I uh, was very uh, inspired by John Robbins' book um, um, on, uh, on factory farming that came out in the 80s. Um, and, um, and then uh, I learned uh, recently that, you know, he became quite rich. He gave up his fortune to the Baskin-Robbins company. But um, he he eventually made quite a lot of money writing books and, and having speaking engagements. Became an environmental activist, and then he lost most of that money in the financial crash. So so this this can happen. It can happen to to you know people like him who basically gave up the financial fortune and made his way up again. So this is very much. Um, this kind of restless economic uh, crash and uh, bust and boom is very much part of the American system. And, and we see it more and more, how the financial economy um, has taken over. So in a sense, we can say that this system or this economy isn't producing much tangible things. There, there are fallouts, in, in a sense, uh, that... Yes, you make a lot of money, you may build, you know, five houses, you may uh, start, you know, another business and so on. Yes, 
some wealth is created, but a lot of that money is just sitting there somewhere and doing nothing for the for the real society. So, in a in a in a better economic society or a more ideal society, the wealth would uh, be the oil in the sense that assists the real economy to produce wealth. We need um, financing. We need some debt to create more money. Uh, you know, in other words, to, to produce something, to create some profit. But this system has become so pervasive and so powerful that it really controls the whole system that it was uh, designed to serve. Right. Let me ask you a follow-up question on that. You mentioned that, that my hypothetical millionaire could, you know, invest in the stock market and go the speculative route there. And the question I have now is sort of about would everyone agree that that's not a really mm, productive, useful way of investing or using that money? And, you know, you, you mentioned that obviously there is a need for financing and creating debt to make capital available for people to do things. If This may not be exactly fair, but I'd still love to try it anyway. So if, if we brought in a center-right businessman at this point, what would he say about, you know, investing in the stock market and all this kind of financial sector? Would would he argue that that's actually good for the world, or would he pretty much say, no, no, this is really just money trying to expand and it doesn't have much of an effect in the real world? Yeah, I, I think so. Um, you know, <laughs> okay. This this is this is really, uh, you know, I. Um, I think that this is really very much what is happening now, and and that way, that sense, the conservative, the right, has done a fantastic job of explaining away the exploitation of capitalism, and in so many ways, and they have all become caught up in it. And I think, in a sense, more than ever. Um, yes, they will explain that away uh, and say that, and this is what we hear from Trump. This is what we hear from the Republican Party, uh, for, uh, you know, even to some extent from the, from the Democrats. We hear this that you know more wealth creates more jobs and so on and so forth. But it isn't necessarily so. Um, as I said, that the financial system is necessary for the real economy to exist, but but because it enables human beings to cooperate in complex ways and so on, it increases. Uh, productivity, but so the problem isn't necessarily with the financial system, but with the fact that it has taken over the control of the real economy and is siphoning off, you know, too big a portion of the profits that could have been reinvested into the real economy. So, um, you know, today, um, you know, this idea of a rentier economy has, um, I think, become very. Um, uh, pervasive uh, and and something that we are all caught up in. You know, uh, Tom Goodwin, um, I am not sure what his background is, but he, he wrote in an article recently that, that uh, you know, Uber, the world's largest taxi company, uh, basically don't own any taxis. Um, Facebook, the world's most popular, uh, you know, owner of media, has, you know, doesn't create their own content like a newspaper. They, we create the content. And, and same thing with Airbnb, the world's largest, uh, you know, 
provider of uh, accommodation in a sense. They they don't own hotels. We own own those. <laughs> and so we have this strange new economy that creates tremendous amount of wealth, but most of that wealth is going to the top. And this has been illustrated by um, a recent um, recent research by Oxfam. When we were writing the book, 300 and some 59, it may not be accurate, but somewhere around that, people had as much wealth as half the world's population. Today, that same number of extremely rich people has dwindled to only eight people. And to me, that, that is really astounding. That, that is incredible. And, and so, um, so when Thomas Piketty, the French economist, you know, who wrote uh, the bestseller uh, about inequality and pointing to, uh, to the fact that inequality in many ways is increasing, when we read these kinds of statistics, we, we, we understand that this is happening on a massive scale. So, um, but at the same time, as I said, the capitalist system is cleverly bringing us all into this system. We are all on Facebook. We are all buying from Amazon and so on and so forth. We are all part of it. And I think this cleverness is part of the reason why we are all sort of asleep at the wheel and and not uh, standing up and saying enough is <laughs> is enough. Um, so this is this is a, a very odd um, uh, realization, I think, but 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 an important one. And I am um, heartened by seeing that more and more people are sort of waking up to to this these insights and 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 speaking the truth. Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's disheartening on the one hand that all of us are increasingly used to these giant corporations and you know from Airbnb to Uber to Facebook to Amazon and they're increasingly part of our lives and they seem to serve us well I completely experienced that I use them all actually um, and yeah we right. are primarily producing massive amounts of wealth for those at the top and so in a way we're integrating them into our normal like the new normal is more of us are more connected to more services, which, you know, do in fact serve us somewhat. Uh, but they also, you know, are creating this incredible wealth for a very, very few people. Um, and what those people right, do with that right. wealth, of course, will create our world going forward. And, and that actually leads me to the next question I'd really like to ask. Um, because the picture I'm getting when I think about um, – the way our world's going, and particularly the picture I get when I think about the 2007-2008 crash that started with the speculative real estate market here in the U.S., is that our entire life is so entirely based on the economy that all of us, from individual citizens to the government itself, are now essentially slaves of the economy. That, like, it's not like the economy's working for us. It's like we're working for the economy at this point. And so we pretty much have to do whatever the bankers tell us has to be done to keep the whole system going. And that seems to me that showed up very dramatically after that crash because the bankers said, oh, what you need to do is bail us out. And the government said, oh, okay, we'll create a huge amount of money for you. 
And so the bankers got to dictate the solution to that problem, which they had, in fact, created, and their solution mm-hmm. made them ever mm-hmm. stronger. Anyway, so that's yeah. what I'm seeing, that, the, you know, what I would love to call the tail is wagging the dog, but I'm not sure it is the tail anymore. It's beginning to feel more and more like it's the brain or some demonic part of the brain that's telling us all what we have to do. Would you comment on that? Yeah, <laughs> again, I, I agree very much with, with what you're saying. Um, I think that, you know, during the, and again, I think that uh, we spoke about the Nordic model and, uh, you know, the the Norwegians and the Swedes, you know, they're um, practical people in many ways, even though, as I said earlier, they have um, become part of this speculation economy as well. I mean, and we saw that with Iceland, uh, for example. Iceland, you know, became a hotspot of investing uh, prior to the economic crash. And we write a little bit about this in the book. However, when the stuff hit the fan, uh, so to speak, then Iceland did something that, yes, yeah, some economists, like, um, for example, Eric Reiner, the Norwegian uh, economist, uh, which we uh, quote a lot in the book, he said that, basically he said, let the banks fail. Let them go down and, and, and you know, take the, take the ship down with them because they created this problem. And that's essentially what Iceland did. They let the banks fail. They didn't allow the taxpayers to bail out the banks, which is what happened, as you, as you so wonderfully stated, uh, in America. We, we basically, here, we let um, the taxpayers pay um, the, fail, the failures of the banks, pay, uh, pay the people that created uh, uh, the big mess. On top of that, they themselves cleverly uh, created, um, you know, a new financial speculation system that gave them more money, uh, sometimes more money than they uh, previously earned. So this is an outrageous system of economics um, th- that um, we need to stop. At the same time, as I said in my introduction, I think that it is a system that eventually will implode because it is so unhealthy, it is so imbalanced. And and I think that this quote by Sarkar, you know, that, that capitalism will explode like a firecracker, I, 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 I think there are many um, proud economists and, and uh, proud activists that have wondered, you know, what does he mean by that? And I think that it, it relates to this part of the economy. Because it is so unhealthy, it is the uh, the essence of a capitalist greed, um, and and again, this capitalist greed is the essence of the problem of capitalism, and we cannot just keep reforming this system and uh, as if we are trying to prop up something. Sort of, um, we see the elephant in the room but we're not really talking about the elephant in the room. What we need to do is to start to talk about that elephant in the room, and we need to do something about it. That leads me to exactly the next question I'd love to ask you. There's a wonderful line in the book that says, 
capitalism has, in a sense, a self-destructive gene in its DNA. Oh, and before we get on, before I go any farther with this question, I want to remind everyone to ask questions or send in comments or, or do something just to, you know, bring a few more voices into this conversation. Um, we're not seeing any questions showing up to Anita yet. Um, but Anita, if you're there, I'd love it if you'd just come on one more time and remind people how to send in a question or a comment to you so it can become part of this conversation. Sure. Yeah, if you have a question or a comment, you can send it to my personal email address, which is abrunato at yahoo.com. That's abrunato, that's my name, at yahoo.com. Great. And so, yeah, it would be wonderful. If anything comes to mind, it doesn't have to be spot on, you know, what we, Ro and I have been talking about. It can be anything that you'd love to hear him address. Just, you know, type that up, send it off to Anita, and we'll get it into the conversation. Um, so now I'll go back to where I was. So I, I was just saying that um, there's this great idea in the book that capitalism has a self-destructive gene in its DNA. Would you, would you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, um, you know, um, as I said earlier, I, I grew up in Norway, and um, and I was part of the leftist movement in Norway. My father was was a communist actually, and I was part of the the communist youth movement. And and I remember remember my father. He said that uh, people's consciousness is tied to their pocketbooks. Um, he said that uh, this, 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 people need to understand the, the essence of economics, and the essence of economics, he said, is, is profit. And that is, strangely enough, he, even though he didn't understand, you know, the context of Sarkar coming from an Indian, you know, sp deeply spiritual tradition, he didn't uh, understand that, but he understood this, and in essence, Sarkar said the same thing that the problem with capitalism is is that it is based on the, the profit motive, on this idea, Adam Smith's idea that that um, that selfishness is good, and it and that because selfishness breeds inventiveness and creativity and so on, and ultimately there will be uh, something creative that is good for everyone. Sarkar said that this is that destructive gene of capitalism. It, and it, this gene is the real and essential problem with capitalism, the profit market. Um, so it is because of that, because of this selfish gene, that is also, which is also capitalism's own self-destructive tendency. This tendency needs to be curbed. We have tried to curb it through tax reforms and so on, but over and over we see that these reforms have not been enough, as I said in my introduction, and especially this is now being seen by, I think, two very essential problems. One is the environmental problem, and the other one is the inequality problem. We have essentially created two planets, one rich and one poor. And inequality is not decreasing, even though in many ways we could say that we ourselves may you know, have better lives than, than our parents, 
parents had and so on. But essentially, this system keeps going. It keeps going on and on. So this is what we mean by the, the selfish gene. It's, it's an essential issue. Capitalism is very complex. Um, just like, you know, speaking within an Indian context, Ayurveda, the health system of yoga is very complex, but at the same time also very simple. Capitalism is very complex, but also very simple. And economics, I think the essence of economics is very simple. We have let um, uh, mathematicians and economists get away with making it seem very complicated, getting away with, with murder in a way. And this, this needs to stop. So the very system of capitalism of selfishness needs to be balanced by cooperation. Capitalism says selfishness is good, it is inventive, it is creative, it creates positive things. And it is based on this idea of um, survival of the fittest, as a social outlook, probably saying that we have two tendencies as humans. We have this, yes, we have this selfish tendency, but we also have something that Sarkar calls uh, Sama Samaj Tattva, the gene of cooperation, the gene of helping others, of altruism. And this is the gene that needs to um, balance the gene of selfishness and the way to do that is through creating economic democracy. Um, that's why um, um, in Prout, as I said earlier, private enterprise will be allowed only on a small scale. If it is not, it, it will always want capitalism. The capitalists will always want more profit, more domination, more control. And we will eventually, no matter the reforms end up with the system uh, we more or less have today. And because of this gene, the whole capitalist system is geared towards increasing concentration of wealth and making some people super rich and the general population, uh, you know, poor. Uh, so, yeah, so that, that's basically what, what that uh, gene <laughs> stands for. Um, and and uh, we need to um, to balance this. As I said, yeah, on the environmental level, capitalism also tends to deplete natural resources, destroying the environment, taking nature for granted as a free lunch. And uh, that is something that the environmental movement and the environmental economists have been very... Um, uh, they have... Uh, documented this problem very well and I think that this is something that more and more people are waking up to this, this insight and this, uh, this wisdom. Um, so, yeah, so basically what we are suggesting in the book, at the end of the book, you know, we, we come up with more long-term solutions. This is what we are saying is that we believe that we need to redesign the system, not to reform the system, but rather redesign the system to restructure the economy so that the economy and the ecology are part of the same system and thus uh, remove the inherent weaknesses of capitalism altogether.
And, and this is what I believe Sarkar has done uh, in developing this new economic model. That's interesting to me that you're, you know, we keep gravitating towards solutions, which is exactly where obviously we're all wanting to go and where the end of the book actually does go. And we have gotten a question in which refers to sort of how you see the transition happening. But before we get to that, I want to ask you about the last time that capitalism was really challenged, it was back when Marx was writing and then the eventual communist revolutions. And at that time, mm -hmm. there was none of the kind of financial excess which characterizes capitalism today, right? I mean, there, was, there were bad things. There were no unions. There was a lot of child labor. There were a lot of really in-your-face terrible things. But it wasn't as bizarre mm -hmm. as it is now. But anyway, he rightly right. predicted that workers would not stand for the system as it was operating then. And so what I'm wondering about mm -hmm. is if you have any insight into why are we so tolerant of the system now? I mean, why aren't we sort of... <laughs> Rebelling in some way. Yeah, I I think that as I said earlier, I think that uh, you know it's it's all uh, the fault of Facebook. Uh, <laughs> 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 it's it's uh, it's Mark Zuckerberg's uh, cleverness that uh, got us you know all uh, made us all lazy and and complacent. Yeah, I think that, that I, I'm. I'm saying this as a joke in a sense, but there's always some, as my math teacher used to say, there's always some, something serious in every joke. Um, so, yeah, I think that the capitalist system has been very, very clever at covering up its tracks. Um, and I think that um, that has been done in, in so many different ways. Um, um, so well, in fact, that the left, has, as was said on the, at the conference in Norway a few years back, about five years ago, um, a friend of mine, a historian and also um, a member of the Proud Movement, he invited, no, actually he was invited to a conference of leftist leaders that wanted to start a new movement because they felt that the leftist parties didn't have any new vision. And so they basically left the different um, progressive parties in Norway. There are seven or eight parties in Norway and about four of them are on the left, uh, you know, uh, and this would be even to the left of, of Bernie Sanders. And so, so they had all um, come together to start a new movement and he was invited, and he started to talk about Prout. And they said, wow, you know, this is what we have been looking for. <laughs> we have run out of ideas, basically. We want, we want these, uh, these new ideas. And so, so I think that um, what has happened is that the system of capitalism has become so clever in designing a system that takes us all in. Uh, you know, we have all become invested in this system. We have all become uh, sleeping slaves, in a way, of the system. Uh, during the housing crisis, the first housing crisis in the early 2000s, um, 
I was part of that. I had friends that flipped houses that, you know, bought the house in, in February and sold it in April and made $50,000. You know, I wanted to do it because I saw the, the, uh, the potential for, for making money. But then I, then I, you know, something, um, came over me and I thought, this is just crazy. This has, this will crash very soon. And, and that's exactly what happened. And, uh, and in a way, I feel like, you know, I, I was, you know, I guess more money is good, but at the same time, my, my conscience didn't feel right about making money in that way. So, uh, you know, I think that, Capitalist, the capitalist system has um, developed a very clever, very robust, very resilient uh, system in uh, covering up its problems and making us believe that, you know, it's okay. If, if we just, you know, we vote for Obama, everything will be okay. Or if we can get Trump out of office, you know, we'll, we'll have a better world and so on. But it isn't that simple. And uh, and I think that as you are doing in your group, and, and again, this is where I, I am heartened by movements such as yours, by people like uh, you have in your group, asking the tough questions, um, looking for deeper answers. This is what we, we need more and more. And um, And I think that so many of the answers are there already, and I think that the next thing is that we need to create that movement that says enough is enough, and and uh, and I and I think that 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 is coming. You know, um, Paul Hawkins, who um, is in a in a sense a green capitalist, and I disagree with with his reform policies. Uh, in essence. Even though he has many good good ideas and so on, but he said something important. I think uh, a few years back he said that there is a growing movement uh, throughout the world of millions of people, a grassroots movement that is never covered in the mass media, and that movement is quietly working on all of these issues, asking the right questions, and at the same time building an alternative economy, an alternative environmental movement. Uh, eco-villages, um, local economies, and so on, uh, discussing the commons and using the resources properly and so on. So that movement is there. And I think that when the right time is there, when, when there is uh, a, a more a deeper and more uh, essential crack in the system, then I think we will see a massive change. Wonderful. I'm going to pause there. Thank you for that one. And Anita, I'm going to ask you to just come on with any question that looks like a good one. We've now gotten quite a few questions in, and many thanks to everyone who's writing them. Anita, can you pick one from the pile and read it to Roar and see where he goes? Sure. Um, so I had a question from Janet, and this is kind of in the theme of um, the changes that are coming, and specifically she's asking how you see the change to the capitalist system coming and what is we as interested parties can do to help bring about change. And you were just speaking to that, I think, about when there's a crack in the system, there's an opportunity for change to happen. Um, 
if you can speak to that anymore and anything we can do now to help bring it about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, I I think that, you know, Leonard Cohen has this beautiful line where he says, there's a crack in everything and that's where the light comes in. I and I think, yeah, and <laughs> and I think that that is what's happening, that the light is coming in through the crack. Um, what can we do and what is being done? I think that um, on a personal level, I think it is very important that we live our, our um, we walk our talk that if we speak about the environment, we need to live according to those values as much as we can. So on a personal level, I think it is very important that we shop at the farmer's market and, 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 and support local economy in a very direct and concrete way and, and try to you know, boycott uh, companies that we think are not healthy and not sustainable and so on. So on a personal level, I think it's very important that we live our values. I also think that it is very important that we join groups such as uh, UDA, such as your group. I think that is very, very important that we educate ourselves, that we become activists, that we start to speak out. Um, that is uh, incredibly important. At the same time, I think, again, as we're doing right now, we're studying prop, we're studying alternative economics. I think this is also very, very important. At the same time, as I mentioned in my introduction and also throughout uh, this conversation, uh, I have emphasized that I think the major change will come through some form of crisis. Unfortunately, that is often how change happens. Um, however, it is very difficult to say when and how it will happen. You know, uh, Karl Marx always thought that the, the communist revolution would happen in England or some industrial uh, country in Europe, industrialized country in Europe, but it happened in Russia uh, to his uh, surprise. And so that again is... is Difficult to say. Um, some um, some people in the proud movement think that Scandinavia is very ripe for this change, and I think there is there is a lot of truth in that. And so when Stiglitz uh, says, you know, let's look towards Scandinavia, maybe um, there is something uh, deeper in that message that it is uh, likely uh, more likely that countries like Norway and Sweden who in many ways I think are halfway there to a, a proudest economy, will be the countries that uh, convert uh, first. This is very, very likely. Um, but I don't think it will happen without some kind of uh, crisis. Uh, I think that, you know, uh, speaking on an individual level, sometimes we need a crisis to make change. We become complacent or we suppress something or we um, deny something. 
And I think we, we live, in a sense, in a great political and economic denial. And we need to wake up. And when enough people wake up, uh, the change will, will come. Thank you. Um, Anita, I want to just keep going with, you know, what you're seeing on your screen there. Do you have another question that would be good for Roar to address? Sure. Um, I've got a couple of questions that are really about um, who we are as human beings and our values. So um, one of the questions here is, can we change the economic system to economic democracy without first changing people's values from separation and selfishness to unity, and in that same theme, um, someone else is asking, uh, in the new economy, how much more do you think we will need to focus on the ex existential basics? For example, do we have each other's backs? Um, our economics on how we take care of each other or how we don't? Who are we and what is our relationship to each other? So really questions about how we relate to each other as human beings. Um, and can we really transform our economy without first looking at that or somehow integrating that into the conversation? Yeah, a wonderful question. And I think it it addresses this issue that um, so far has been missing in in the leftist movement, in in the you know, or, or we may call it the progressive movement. It is addressed to some extent in the environmental moment that we need to live our values and um, and we could say that in, to some extent in the in the spiritual moment however in each of these moments the, there are some uh, some gaps some holes in the spiritual moment there's a tendency to to think that if we all if we all become spiritual then everything will change in the environmental moment you know, there is the idea that if you all become environmentalists, uh, there will be change. Um, I think it is, as I said earlier, very, very important and fundamental that we walk our talk as much as we can. That is very, very important. And so, yes, I think that as the, uh, the questioner says, that this integration of our own values the value of cooperation, the value of caring for the environment, taking care of um, our, our neighbors and, and all of those community values, and at the same time our deeper spiritual values of finding peace within so that we don't blame others and, and scapegoat and so on. All of those are very, very important. So yes, I do think that the real change will come, and, and Sarkar spoke to this very, very uh, clearly that he, he, he had the Sanskrit term, you know, he, because he came from India, uh, a personality that he says is you know, what he called a sadvipra. Uh, and this personality, uh, Sarkar said, is an integral personality, someone that has integrated all of the different qualities of being human. Uh, it is a, a person that is spiritual, but also understands the real world, lives in the world, uh, is a warrior in a sense when it comes to injustice, and, and is also someone that understands economics. 
and is into social change, but also someone that deeply values spirituality and ethics. And he said that that is the leader of the new economy, of of, of the new uh, new world. And and I and this this is something that deeply resonates with me uh, because I soon became very frustrated with the, the leftist and, and progressive movement in Norway because I didn't see these values in that movement. And I left in, in frustration and, and became an anarchist and you know, sort of went to, to another extreme. And, and then I got involved in more spiritual things, you know, went to India and so on and so forth. And that's, that's how I met Sarkar and got involved in, in his work. So, yes, I think that as the questioner uh, pointed to, an essential need in integrating the personal and um, the economic, uh, the internal with the external, the subjective with the objective, I think is, is key. Another thing I, I, I want to say in conclusion is that I don't think we necessarily need, you know, half the world to uh, convert or to become, you know, these kinds of people. Because we see generally that change happen through small numbers of people um, that, that are, are the vanguards, the pioneers. And so... Um, I think that when we have enough of these pioneers, these integrated personalities, then the change will come. Fascinating approach, and I get it. Um, I think many of the people on the call are, you know, pretty involved in their own value-based living, and I think lots of refrigerators that we've all been in homes of have, you know, the quote from Gandhi saying, you know, be the change you want to see in the world, and I suspect mm -hmm. Gandhi had yes. in mind another sentence that would come after that, you know, be the change you want to see in the world and then go out and make it happen, which is what he obviously did. Yeah. So yeah. So it it, most, uh, exactly. So, Anita, I think, yes. I think we've got probably time for one more question, and then there's a final one I want to ask um, Roar. So do you have another one that you're seeing there that would be good for Roar to address now? Yeah, I actually see there's a couple of them here, so I'm just um, looking through to pick one. So, so another question here, you state that capitalism is clever in disguising its problems. Do you think that this is a concerted effort on purpose? Does Mark Zuckerberg really know what he's doing long-term to the economy? Um, and are these people perhaps asleep slaves as we are, just with more money? Wow, great question. Yeah. <laughs> I... Um, I think that there are some capitalists that are very devious, very um, aware of uh, the exploitation and the damage they're they're doing, um, because this, this is this this we have seen throughout history. We have seen it. We saw it in the early uh, industrial area era when when we moved from the mercantile economy into the industrial capitalist economy, the, the, the way that 
factory owners would treat their workers, you know, child laborers and so on. And this is in many ways still happening today. In, in many corners of the world, there are capitalists that are basically criminals. And so you have people like that that are, you know, in a sense, demons in human form. Uh, yes, there are capitalists like that. Uh, but I don't think Mark Zuckerberg uh, is one of them. I, I don't think so. So, yes, I think that uh, many of the people in you know, Silicon Valley and in this new creative bubble, I think that they are in many ways well-meaning and, and they have, uh, uh, but at the same time as the, the, the questionnaire uh, mentioned, uh, unconscious about their own, uh, the, the, the reality that they're creating uh, in, in many ways. There's an unconsciousness there, a denial, and, um, you know, for example, Amazon, uh, there is a new book that just came out called Nomad. I think uh, either Nomad or Nomads. And it is about the people in the, uh, who are largely in their 60s who travel in motorhomes. Uh, they are kind of in that, uh, uh, you know, uh, underclass of people that move from town to town and they work three, four months here in, in, in an Amazon facility. And they, they kind of live paycheck to paycheck. Um, and so these kind of, kinds of workers are part of the economy that Amazon has created. Um, so whereas the bosses of Amazon may not think very deeply about that, but at the same time, we know that they're not really concerned about it. So there is both a conscious awareness of the problems that they are creating, but it may not be as always as demonic as, you know, the, the people that, um, uh, you know, engage in child labor and so on and so forth. So, so I think that it is a little bit of everything. It is, uh, it can be demonic and, uh, and terrible but it can also be unconscious and just part of the system. Uh, we're all, as I said earlier, become part of the system, and we need to to uh, to speak to that, to that fact that that we have become slaves of the system. And and Sarkar also spoke about that. He said that uh, in many in many ways, the capitalists are also um, slaves of their own system, and and we need to both reform or, or restructure the system and, and also the, the capitalists themselves. Thank you once again. Um, great answer. Uh, and with apologies to many people who I know have written in good questions that we're not going to get to, I'm going to just turn to the last question I want to ask Roar because it has to do with you know, the particular piece of EDA which the education group um, is responsible for. And, I want to make sure Roar has enough time to answer this. Roar, if you could magically educate the American people on just three points, and I'm asking this because I really think um, that's about the number of points we might be able to get through over the next decade. 
So if there were three essential messages which you really wanted the American people to kind of get at a deep, conceptual, lived level, what would they be? So I'm really asking you to think about, um, you know, if you were the education wing of economic democracy advocates and you mm-hmm. thought, yeah, we want to take on three, you know, three messages here, what three do you think are the most good places to direct energy? Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you, you mean in terms of how how you would want to educate the public? Yeah, it's how you would want to educate the public, really. I mean, and the question really is, if you could get mm-hmm. the American people mm-hmm. to know three things that they don't right presently know that might help this whole process move along, mm-hmm. what three things uh-huh. would you really want them to know that might, you know, might motivate action, might change how they see things, might change their behavior. I don't know. Whatever three things you'd love them to suddenly know. Can you think of three mm-hmm. kind of in that area? It doesn't have to be three. Maybe uh, two or four. But something like that. <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. All right. Let, let, I haven't thought it through uh, completely yet, but let me let me start. Because one, there's one issue that comes up clearly to me and, and which... I hope you will be happy that I that uh, I came up with that idea, and that is the economic democracy. Uh, <laughs> um, I think that it is essential for people in America to understand that the power of people lies in more in economic democracy rather than political democracy. This is, and this is not just for Americans, this is for, for people all over the world. And, and again, I think that this is one of the beautiful insights of, of Sarkar, this understanding that we exist on a local level and we engage in economics more than we do politics on a day-to-day basis. And if we want to take the power back, we need to emphasize that the real power lies in economic democracy. And so that that's the number, number one thing that said in another way that in order to balance the, the often futile uh, endeavors of political democracy, and we, and we see this in America again and again, uh, how useless in a way it is to you know, think that the next president is going to, you know, create a better America. This, this, this is not, it is not that easy. And so to emphasize this need for economic democracy, I think, and to educate people about that, that the real power lies in creating economic democracy. This is the way we can take back the power from the corporations and from the politicians that, are paid and uh, and bought by the, these same corporations. Um, so that that is one thing. And then secondly, I think this I, this uh, and this is part of economic democracy within Trump. This idea that we need to create a vibrant local economy. Um, we cannot have economic democracy if we don't have a vibrant local economy. And that means that we need to emphasize the importance of a decentralized economy. That uh, 
uh, people in the local areas take back economics into their own hand and develop the, the uh, infrastructure from the, the bottom up on the local level. Uh, that means producing food locally. That means, uh, you know, having uh, industries in rural areas and so on. So that, for example, in an area uh, of Appalachia where I live, where there is a lot of poverty, still this area has tremendous potential. Uh, there is labor potential. There is vast uh, amount of land available and so on, but it is largely unutilized. If this area would have been anywhere in, in, uh, in Europe, it would have been a flourishing um, agricultural area. Yeah. So there's tremendous potential in America, tremendous potential. And, and so much is wasted on this uh, belief that, you know, if, if I work hard enough, I will become you know, as rich as whoever. Um, this myth of individualism and so on. I, th I think this is something that is very difficult, I think, to speak to, but I think it is also important to, to and maybe that's the third point, to, to emphasize the need for a more communitarian culture in America and values that are communitarian, community-oriented rather than, uh, than uh, individualist. You know, this rugged individualist, this mythos is so strong in America and it needs to change. This is perhaps the biggest challenge <laughs> in America to change that, that mythos of the rugged individualist because I think that is uh, very much uh, a part of the problem within the culture. And I think that is perhaps why, you know, Scandinavia where... For example, in Denmark, I, I, um, if you would ask someone in Denmark about, you know, single-payer healthcare system, uh, you know, they, they wouldn't think it's a question. You know, they, they would just take it for granted that this is how it should be, that everybody should have healthcare and everybody should have free education and so on. This is just, and this, these are, you know, in the proud system, fundamental, uh, you know, the, in proud to say that all the basic needs, you know, housing, education, medical care should be a guarantee for everybody. Not necessarily through welfare handouts, but through guaranteed employment and, and collective uh, shared wealth. So, um, yes, perhaps those three, economic democracy, the importance of decentralized economy, and then the... Um, Changing the mythos of from individualism to uh, to a more communitarian uh, spirit. Perfect. And that that last point you addressed the the last question that came in that we didn't get to, and I'm not going to ask you to go into fully was was about the role of government. I mean, just this question of you know, okay, so we've got these governments, and what are they supposed to be doing for us? Because your first two points didn't have much to do with a government role. But you're so right mm -hmm. that, you know, mm -hmm. obviously the government has responsibility for whether or not there are basic rights within a country, like right. housing, education, yeah. medicine. And at the very beginning, you mentioned full employment also, which is one of mine, um, that I just think is so mm -hmm. doable and would make such a difference. Do you have any comments on any of that? Yeah. And then we'll just wrap it up. Just yeah, on, on the function of the government? Yeah. Okay. 
Yeah, so, yeah, the government is very, very important. You know, again, this is another problem, I think, in America, that there's so much suspicion about the role of government. Um, I think that, as uh, what someone said in the Michael Moore movie, you know, people in, in Europe, the government is afraid of the people in America. Uh, the people are afraid of the government. And um, I think it is very important to see the, uh, that the government has a very good function. And again, speaking in prop terms, when we talk about the government, we are not just talking about the state government in Washington uh, or, or the federal government in Washington, but rather on the state and local level, you know, down to the city level. So again, government means decentralized politics as well. Um, so the government's role is to set policies, good policies for for the country, uh, good policies uh, regarding the environment, regarding economics, regarding healthcare, and so on and so forth. So that is the role of government. And at the same time, it is important that the government stays out of, um, um, uh, we could say, meddling with uh, with things on an, on an economic level, so that there is uh, a clear separation there. Uh, one thing that Sarkar talks talks about is that it's better to have a, a party-less democracy than a party democracy. Uh, he thinks that it would be better if politicians were not affiliated with, with parties, but rather affiliated with policy. With, in other words, they stand for policies uh, uh, and uh, and not are not you know necessarily adherent to a certain political party. And 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 this is something that many uh, like Václav Havel in, in in the Czech Republic also talks about that that's the future a party-less democracy. Um, but yeah, the role of government is very, very important. And again, in, if we go to the Scandinavian model, we see a very different attitude towards the government because people there feel that the government is doing good things for them. And even the right-wing party, you could say that the party that is equal to the Republican Party in the United States, would never think of ever, ever saying that we should take away, uh, you know, universal health care from, from the people and, 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 you know, people should, you know, fend for themselves and, and find, you know, the best health care on the market. They would never, ever think about that. So, um, yeah, so I, th- I think that with the change in consciousness and with the change in understanding the proper relationship between government and, and economics, a good policy, and and giving people the freedom to implement those policies on the local level. I, th- I think that there will be a shift towards, you know, uh, again, in people's uh, belief in the possibility of good government. That would be a welcome shift in this country. It's just amazing to <laughs> yeah. think about the... Yeah, yeah, I know. My parents' generation to the current time of, you know, we really kind of trusted and respected our government not so many years ago. I mean, maybe 50. Um, and boy, has it ever changed? It's it's really remarkable. But with that, Roar, I, I think we we do need to wrap up. We we've used every minute of our time. 
So I know if we could unmute everyone now, we would hear everyone saying thank you. And truly, everyone has hung in for the whole length of the call because you've been giving us really useful insights and thoughts. And on behalf of everyone, I really want to thank you for that. And I also want to thank everyone who showed up for the call for, you know, giving time and attention to these, you know, hard and challenging thoughts, um, which have everything to do with what EDA is trying to understand and pursue. So thanks to all. And Rory, if there's any last thing you want to say, just go ahead. And... Well, well, I, I want to thank you so much for inviting me to this. I, I enjoyed it. I, I was very stimulated by the questions, and um, and I, I learned a lot by you know rethinking uh, the work on the book and delving you know deeper into many of these issues. So I, I really appreciate it, and. Um, yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. Oh, it's been our pleasure. And you know, the thing that's unsaid here, but I hope you really understand, is that all of us thank you for writing the book. I mean, it's a wonderful book, and everyone who's <coughs> reading it agrees that it's a wonderful book. And um, I'm sure that lots of us are going to be giving it to friends and relations, you know, through the holiday season and just saying, you know, this is a good book. And so really thank you for doing the work of putting that together. <laughs>